0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Am I on now? Okay, finally. There's sound in the house. All right, a couple of announcements before we get started. We had to wait for them to reboot, whatever they need to reboot back there. This Saturday morning at 10.30, 10.30, there's a Ladies Prayer Fellowship uh, Valentine Tea at the West Falls map. There's a map out on the counter in the kitchen and also a sign-up sheet if you haven't signed up already. This is the 14th. Then on the 21st, which is the next Saturday evening, there will be a family night here and we will show the film uh, Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. It be good for everybody to kind of go through that again and see it again and bring uh, anyone you want. If you're not familiar with it, this is the um, documentary that, uh, what's his name? Ben Stein, ben Stein did. Related to the fact that there's just no objectivity, no desire to have objectivity in the uh, in upper level education related to teaching flaws in evolution. Now this is particularly timely again, because the Texas Board of Education in their wisdom, has just changed these standards again in terms of teaching science, so that which had previously for or at least for the last ten years mandated that uh, flaws or problems with evolution be taught in the classroom. And now that's that's out. So uh, they're back to teaching fiction as fact, fantasy as uh, flawless science. So we're back to brainwashing children with paganism again in a much stronger way. So that's uh, that's on Saturday. On Sunday there will be a congregational meeting. On Sunday, February the 22nd, congregational meeting immediately following uh, the morning worship service. And then don't forget the Trafer Conference is coming up. Evening sessions will be at 7:30. The evening speaker is Ron Merriman, and Ron was a pastor for many years in Denver. He was uh, early on in his a career. He was the interim president of Western Bible College in Denver. He did his uh, doctoral studies at, uh, I believe, the University of Denver. And he is very good. He is, uh, he is, um, you know, I've known Ron now maybe 15 or 20 years, and he always does excellent, excellent uh, work in studying the Word. So I look forward to hearing from Ron. Morning speaker. We have a keynote speaker in the morning, Dr. Bob Thomas. And uh, at the risk of offending anybody, I almost called the conference this year the Oldie Goldie Conference because these two guys are both in their mid to late 70s, and they are just great. Uh, Bob Thomas has been teaching since he was the first full-time faculty member that Biola or Talbot Seminary, which is associated with Biola uh, back when it was still a good school. Uh, he was the first full-time faculty member that Talbot hired, got his master's and doctorate from Dallas Seminary. I had read numerous articles and a couple of books that he had written by the time I first went to went to seminary in the mid-'70s and found him to be just a tremendous scholar. His work on hermeneutics is tremendous, and that's what he'll be talking about. About is current issues in evangelical hermeneutics. And then we have uh, several others who will be speaking during the day, including Tommy Ice and uh, Andy Woods, uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, George Meisinger, myself, and two or three others, Charlie Clough, and two or three others. So um, we're going to need some help. And those of you who received an email this week are supposed to meet after church this Sunday because we need to make sure we're all organized in terms of our logistics for the conference. Okay, before we get started with our study, let's bow our heads and open in prayer. Father, we're thankful that your word is the real power in our life, and it is your word that God the Holy Spirit uses to challenge us, to teach us, to mature us, it's in our study of your word that we come to truly understand the tremendous uh, complexities of our salvation, that it was not something uh, simple, but something extremely profound because the problem's profound. And we often do not realize the complexities of sin and evil as it has extended its tentacles throughout all of the universe in both the spiritual as well as the physical domain. And so as we Study your word, study in Hebrews about the results of Christ's work on the cross. It helps us to great, more greatly appreciate all that you have done for us. Now, Father, we pray that as we continue our study, we can be challenged with these important truths of your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Hebrews chapter 9, and I just want to pick up the context a little bit, starting in verse 12. In verse 12, we read, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying uh, purifying of the flesh, how much more, verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, there's a lot of different ideas here, and I want to just focus on the main stream of thought here to make sure we uh, understand what the writer is saying. In verse 11, he says, But Christ came as a high priest, and then just skip the rest of it, skip down to verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all. That's his main idea, entering the most holy place once for all, and he's emphasizing the finality and the completion of the work of salvation by Christ's sacrifice, by his atonement, on the cross. Everything else simply feeds into that idea. The other things that feed into that idea and give us additional information have to do with the fact that there is a heavenly tabernacle, not just the earthly tabernacle. The heavenly tabernacle is has to do with the dwelling place of God, the throne room of God, and that is where Christ appears after his ascension. I pointed out that his when, when he came or when he entered into human history, it should be understood as a temporal participle there. But when Christ entered into history as a high priest of the good things to come, the good things to come has to be understood as a, as a phrase, as a stock phrase that relates to what Christ was going to do on the cross. So he comes into history at the, with the virgin conception and virgin birth. But the focal point here is when he goes to the cross, that's when he performs his high priestly work, offering himself as a sacrifice. And then it is after that that he enters the most holy place in heaven, and that would be at the ascension. So there's this comparison and contrast between the temporary limited ritual sacrifice performed by the Aaronic High Priest that happened once a year on the Day of Atonement. It was annual, it was on the basis of the blood of animals, the death of animals, and it didn't secure anything more than a ritual cleansing that got the nation through until the next year on the Day of Atonement. In contrast to that, Jesus' death is once for all. His death has value that has infinite value because of who he is uh, in hypostatic union with God the Son. And that the sacrifices only had limited value, but they did have a value. There was a physical cleansing or ritual sanctification setting apart for the purifying of the flesh but Christ's sacrifice goes deeper, verse 14, that it cleanses our conscience, not the external body, not just physical ritual cleansing, but cleansing the conscience. That is uh, the conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is an a fortiori argument that is set up here that you go from the lesser to the greater if the lesser is true, how much more true uh, is the greater? And the greater, of course, is the sacrifice, the death of the second person of the Trinity in hypostatic union with uh, true humanity on the cross. Because Christ is greater and empowered by the Holy Spirit, indicated by the phrase eternal spirit, then his death has greater uh, value. Now, as we look at this, there's some things we need to look at in a little more depth in terms of what verse 14 states. First of all, we have the word offer, which is the Greek word prospero, which means to bring something to, to lead something to, which you would lead an animal to the altar for sacrifice, or to offer, uh, you could offer yourself. And here it simply indicates that uh, God the Son, through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is empowering and energizing his spiritual life. And that is the same pattern that we've seen before, that the spiritual life of Jesus Christ in his humanity is uh, the pattern, the model for our spiritual life. The, the pattern or model for the spiritual life of the church-age believer is not the Mosaic Law. It is the spiritual life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we studied this extensively when we looked at passages back in the second chapter and the third chapter that Christ was made perfect through the things that he suffered. If he encountered and handled the testing, the temptation, the suffering that he went through in his humanity by relying on his deity, then that wouldn't be very difficult at all. I mean, what kind of a test is it for God to be God and not to, not to sin? So, Jesus could not have relied upon his divine attributes, his deity at all, in order to handle uh, the suffering, the testing, the adversity that he went through in life. He had to handle it through the same limited, finite human resources that we all have. And that boils down to the same two, the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And we see that example especially when he is in the wilderness. Luke 4, when he's in the wilderness and the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness and there he is tested by Satan three times and in each one of those tests, he responds by by quoting the word of God correctly. By the second test, Satan is using the word to try to trip him up and Satan is misquoting and misinterpreting the word and Jesus is straightening him out. But he uses the word of God in conjunction with the Spirit of God, in order to handle that testing. Now, he is in the same state that Adam was in, in the garden. And that's where the co- the uh, comparison should be, is Adam is the first Adam, is created perfect, no sin nature. He's put in a testing situation where he can, in his humanity, he can disobey God. Jesus is created as true humanity in order to uh, go through the sa- same t- kinds of tests. But he is going to pass the test. He is going to be, remain obedient because he's relying upon the spirit of God and the word of God. And therefore, he is able to live a life of impeccability. Now, that life of impeccability is brought out in the next word that we have here, which is the Greek word, Amomas, uh the a, a or the alpha at the beginning is like our English prefix un; it's a negative, and it means uh, without blemish, without blemish, or uh, indicates. And this is language that is usually used with sacrifices. Uh, can be unblemished or spotless, and so we have the same word used, for example, in 1 Peter 1, uh, 18 and 19, that talks about the fact that we were uh, not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from our empty manner of life, but with the precious blood uh, as of a lamb without spot or blemish. And that's that word. So this is using sacri- language that is applied to the sacrifices. All, and then this is taken to another level, in Colossians 1:22, that He reconciled us; He has now reconciled you, that is, every believer, in His fleshly body through death, in order to present you before Him holy and blameless. So here we see the word "blameless" used in conjunction with "holy," which is uh, here picks up the additional nuance of without sin, and so we are presented as it were, as if that sin is not held against it. We have the imputed righteousness of Christ, and so we are declared uh, righteous and holy and above reproach. So that is how we are presented in terms of our position in Christ. When we go back to Hebrews 9.14, there's another word that's added here, and that's the word cleanse. So we read how much more shall the blood of Christ, that is the death of Christ, that phrase blood of Christ, always referring to his spiritual substitutionary work on the cross, who through the eternal spirit, that indicates the means that enabled him to stay on the cross and handle the adversity, the suffering that he faced there in terms of handling our sin, when he who knew no sin was made sin for us, who through the eternal spirit offered himself Uh, without spot to God, because he is impeccable, without sin, how much more shall the blood of Christ cleanse? That's your idea. The relative clause in the middle just adds more information. How much more shall his blood cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now the word there is the verb katharizo. And katharizo is the word that we find in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, God's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a word that's used, a Greek word that's used in the Septuagint of the Old Testament to translate all those words that we read about clean animals and unclean animals and being cleansed when you... Wash your hands in the labor and the need to be cleansed through the sin offerings and trespass offerings. And so it's a word that refers to ceremonial purification in the ritual of, of the Old Testament. And it is a word that is used to describe what happens when the believer's uh, sin is been dealt with when he's been cleansed and uh, purified by virtue of his faith in Christ when he is, receives the imputation of Christ's righteousness. So, it is the death of Christ that cleanses our conscience from the guilt of sin. And every person is guilty of sin. And when I use the term guilt of sin, I'm not talking about your personal guilt feelings over whatever it is that you've done that you think uh, offend God and shock God and shock everybody else. That's not what the text is talking about. It's talking when it talks about guilt. It's, we're talking about the the legal declaration of human guilt because of Adam's sin. When Adam disobeyed God, Adam and all of his descendants are declared guilty before God's supreme court. And they are legally guilty, and that legal guilt has to be dealt with objectively and subjectively. I've talked about that in the past. What I mean by objectively is in relation to God. That's the Godward aspect of atonement, that in atonement you have a, a payment price, a penalty that's paid. When Adam sinned, a penalty is assessed judicially by God. And that is that means that Adam instantly died spiritually, and because of that spiritual death that occurred to Adam, everyone that's born from him is also born spiritually dead. But Adam's sin is that which condemns the human race. And that's made clear in passages like Romans chapter chapter 5 as well. So Adam's sin is a cause of our guilt. Now, when so we're declared guilty and we're we're under condemnation, God's justice has to be satisfied, and it demands that the penalty be paid. So redemption focuses on the penalty, the payment of that penalty by a substitute. So that's one aspect of atonement. Another aspect of atonement deals with uh, reconciliation. That because that is paid for, then there can be a reconciliation between two parties who are at enmity with one another. And then the third aspect is propitiation that God's justice and righteousness have been satisfied by the payment of that penalty. So those three ideas, redemption, propitiation, and reconciliation are all linked together and that word that's used for atonement in the Old Testament incorporates all of those things. Now those are all directed toward God, so the God, the, the God is pleased with the sacrifice of Christ, and now, uh, so we, the text can say that all are redeemed, all are reconciled, and, and God is propitiated toward all men. But that doesn't change the individual qualities of the spiritually dead person and they can only be saved by having their nature changed they have to have righteousness the kind of righteousness that God can accept they have to have a new life because they're spiritually dead experientially and they have to have eternal life and so those are only applied to them once an individual puts their faith alone in Christ alone and so when they, when each of us believed in Jesus, at that instant, God the Father assigns to us, and the term is imputation, assigns to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. So it, it never has anything to do with who we are, what we've done, or what we haven't done. It has to do with the fact that Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness is put on us like a covering so that the sin that we have and will have is not an issue, Because what God looks at now is the righteousness that's been credited to us by Jesus Christ. He has an unlimited bank account. And those assets are all assigned to us. And we're all in greater debt than the United States government. That's pretty bad. When it comes to the the sin and debt assigned to us, We're worse off than any any nation in history. We are worse than bankrupt. I don't know what that would be, but we're worse than bankrupt. And that certificate of indebtedness, you know, it's really, I think I read an article the other day, it's more like $8 trillion because the FDIC has ponied up a lot of money and two or three other government organizations have put up a lot of money, and we have a trillion dollars from back in September and another trillion. We can't count that high. That's, that whole certificate of debt of a hundred gazillion dollars that's been laid against us was nailed to the cross. So that's not an issue anymore. That's the objective side. But when we trust in Christ, then it is subjectively applied to us and our conscience is cleansed. So that when you understand what happens at the cross, there's no place for guilt. There's no place for Running around saying, I've got to do something to please God. And that was, and you have to really understand this in connection to the ritual of the Old Testament because the whole phrase reads that the blood of Christ will cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, what are the dead works in context? The dead works here aren't just going out and doing human good. The dead works here aren't just going out and being involved in religion as opposed to Christianity. The dead works here in context are the ritual observances under the Mosaic law, the sacrifices and the offerings that were all prescribed by the Mosaic law, and what happened on the Day of Atonement the Day of Atonement, the high priest goes in and he, he's going to sacrifice the sin offering and sacrifice the burnt offering. He's going to take the blood in and he's going to light the incense. He's going to put the blood on the Ark of the Covenant and splatter it in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Then he's going to go out and he's going to uh, select the two goats and he will uh, identify the sins of the nation with each goat, kill one goat, send the other goat into the wilderness, the scapegoat. And that only lasted for a year. And then he's got to do it again next year. And then he's got to do it again the next year. and He's got to do it again the next year and the next year. And see, their, their conscience is never really cleansed. Nothing is, is really resolved. It's all ritual. And so that's what he, the point that he's making is that the death of Christ cleanses not the flesh, but cleanses the conscience from dead works, so that these rituals are are no longer necessary because of the completed work of Christ. Now, there's a purpose for this. That when you were saved, when you trusted in Christ as your Savior, you, may, you didn't have to understand this to be saved. You may have come to understand it later and maybe you didn't like it. But the reason that we were saved wasn't just so we could go to heaven and God could be happy that we were there. See, a lot of people think that. God just wants me in heaven. Isn't it great? I'm just such a nice person. No, that's not why he saved us. He saved us, and this comes out in in that last phrase. Let me go back to the verse. We're cleansed to serve. That's a purpose, an infinitive of purpose there. We are cleansed to serve the living God. That's our purpose, is to serve him. Now, the word that's used here is the word latruo, which is one of two words that are usually used for for worship. Uh, proskuneo, which has to do with bending the knee, that ha- is more the idea of uh, of worship in terms of honoring God is a different word. Latruo indicates service of God, serving him as the Lord. So there are several points that we can cover to summarize the doctrine of serving the Lord. This is one way in which uh, we worship. Six points on serving the Lord. First of all, before a person can serve or worship God, They must be justified, forgiven, and regenerated. This is, these are all subjective application of the cross terms. You must be, that means you have to be a believer before you can worship God. You can't serve God by going off to India or Africa or China or going down and working at a soup kitchen or at Star of Hope Mission. Or working at a on a cancer ward or whatever it is, you can't do any of those things uh, as a way of serving God if you're an unbeliever. It's not acceptable worship. On Sunday morning, we've talked the last couple of Sundays in, in revelation about uh, worship must be acceptable worship. There are certain protocols that God lays out in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. For worship, you can't just come to worship God on on your own terms and do it the way you, you think, and the criterion isn't how it makes you feel, and if you feel closer to God, and the music made you sway, and all the things that are typical today of, uh, of, of people's thinking about worship is, is irrelevant. The first thing that has to happen is you have to be properly related to God in terms of the judicial cleansing of Adam's original sin and guilt. And that only comes when we put our faith alone in Christ alone. So before we can serve or worship God, we have to be justified, forgiven, that's positional forgiveness, and regenerated. Now, how? what are the ways in which the Bible says that we serve and worship the Lord? Well, this is second point. We serve God through prayer and corporate worship. Luke 2.37. This woman was a widow about 84 years old who did not depart from the temple. Notice she is at the proper place where worship, corporate worship took place in Israel. She did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. So the fasting was part of the ritual in uh, and, and Israel, but this is related to her personal spiritual life and prayer. So we serve God through prayer and worship. Third point, we serve God in terms of our spiritual growth and use of our spiritual gifts, in terms of our spiritual growth and our spiritual gifts. Now, there is a related word, a cognate, another form of latruo. Latruo is, is the verb. And in R- Romans 12.1, we have uh, the noun form. In Romans 12.1, we read, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable to God which is your reasonable service and that's that that word for service there is the cognate of the verb uh, latruo it has to do with serving God how do we serve God we serve God through the entirety of our life so what Paul does at the end of all of his doctrinal exposition in the first 11 chapters of Romans he comes to this conclusion and that's the point of the therefore in 12.1. Therefore, I beseech you, or I beg of you, or I challenge you. He's pleading with them by the mercies of God, because you now understand God's grace in action. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. So the reason he use body is because it's the totality of our life. It's not just a platonic spiritual dimension. It is everything that we do comes under this umbrella. We present our bodies a living sacrifice so that our lives are to serve God. That's the idea of sacrifice there. Not that it's always going to feel like we're giving something up or that idea, but that it is being dedicated to God. We're going to do what God would have us to do as opposed to what we would want to do. So we present our bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is our reasonable form of worship. Some could translate it that way. So that is individual worship. So we serve God in terms of our own personal spiritual growth, reading the Word, memorizing the Word, personal prayer, all of that, listening to Bible class, coming to church, studying the Word, all of that, applying it relates to our spiritual growth, making sure that we're in fellowship, walking by the Spirit, and the Spirit of God uses what we learn and produces spiritual growth. Paul said in Acts 27:23, 23 uh, there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. He's, he's stating, and several times Paul says it this way, that God is the one to whom he belongs. He told the Corinthians, you have been bought with a price Therefore serve God. We are to serve Him because He, He redeemed us. And that's the idea that He has here, the angel of the God to whom I belong, that we are, we go from being bond servants or slaves to the sin nature to being bond servants to God. Romans chapter 6. So we are to serve Him. Point four. Just as there's, we have to recognize that just as there's only two options in terms of thinking, either divine viewpoint, or human viewpoint, God's knowledge um, and truth, or Satan's knowledge and truth. We're either serving God or serving Satan. Those are the only options. Life is really black and white. Now, the world out there wants to ridicule us because, oh, those Christians, they just want to make everything good or bad, righteous or unrighteous. Everything's either uh, right or wrong. They just think in terms of black and white, just how Neanderthal, how antediluvian, but... Uh, that's what the scriptures teach: that we're either walking by the Spirit or we're walking by the flesh. We're either thinking God's thoughts or we're thinking according to human viewpoint, and we're either serving God or we're serving ourselves or sin nature, which is tantamount to operating in Satan's world. So we're ultimately serving Him. Romans one twenty-five states it this way: that those who reject God or those who have exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So these are the options. We're either going to serve the creator or we're going to serve the creature. Fifth point, our service must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in Philippians 3.3, For we are the circumcision, this is a spiritual circumcision, not physical circumcision. The picture of circumcision there is the removal, the cutting away of the bondage of the sin nature. For we are the circumcision who worship God, and most translations will just translate in the spirit, but it's a instrumental dative and it should be translated, We worship God. By means of the Spirit. This is the same thing we saw in John chapter 4 when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. He said that we must, God is Spirit, and we must worship God in spirit and in truth. And most translations will translate it with just a simple English preposition, in, as I pointed out on Sunday morning, but it's a Greek preposition, in, en, plus a dative form of the uh, noun, and there's only one other place in John where John uses the preposition in with the dative of, of Numa. Only one other place in John where he uses uh, in plus the dative of Aletheia for, for truth. And in bo- both places, the instrumental idea reigns. And the reason I emphasize that is because there's a certain number of people who want to leave this as sort of what I think is a fuzzy concept. We're in the spirit. What does that mean? It's just Kind of quasi mystical that I just get in the state where i 'm enveloped by the spirit and i'm i 'm in the spirit, well, what does that mean and i don 't think that 's very clear. I think the idea of instrumentality of being of worshiping by means of uh, the spirit or by means of the truth of god 's word is gives us a much better handle on what this means is that that in order to worship God there is a uh, an intermediary means that enables us to do that, and that is the standard of truth and God the Holy Spirit who indwells and fills us. So just as Jesus said in John 4, Paul says, we worship God by means of the Spirit, rejoice in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. And then the sixth point, our present service, prepares us for future service. If you don't like the idea that God wants you to serve him in various ways in this life, then you're going to have a problem because when we get to heaven, we're going to serve him day and night in his temple. Revelation 7.15, Revelation 22.3 says, There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. That's what we will be doing. Our servants will serve Him. Back to Hebrews 9.15. For this reason. What reason? Well, contextually, that's in what is covered in verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, the death of Christ, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That, for that reason, because Christ's death has such infinite value, that he has done everything for us. He has provided everything for us. For that reason, because of the value of his death on the cross, he is the mediator of the new covenant. Now, that word mediator is the idea that he is the one who stands between God and man. He is the one who provides the link so that man can have a relationship with God. And this is based on The new covenant, which, and the sacrifice for the new covenant is what was performed, what he performed on the cross when he initiated the Lord's table and said, This is the new covenant of my blood. So for this reason, because of the value of his death, he's the mediator of the new covenant so that, now this is a nasty little piece of Greek grammar in this verse and very difficult to Uh, pull apart, and I'm not sure how technical I want to get with this, but the main idea that we have here is that this first word that we have in the Greek is translated so that, and it indicates purpose. But the clause where we have a, actually a plural noun and a verb, a subject and a verb, doesn't come up until we get down to the last part of the verse. So it, I think it reads better and communicates better if we translate it, he is the mediator of the new covenant, so that, and then skip down to the end, so that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, the transgressions under the first covenant. So by restructuring the sentence, it becomes clear that the purpose for his being mediator of the new covenant is related to Receiving the promise of the eternal inheritance, so the believers, church age believers, receive the promise of the inher- uh, eternal inheritance. Participle there that has a sort of a causal, or explanatory force, since the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. So it emphasizes that because of that, on the basis of the fact that these transgressions are dealt with then those who are called can receive the eternal inheritance. Now, when we look at this passage on the new covenant, it brings to mind two passages we've looked at already in Hebrews. Hebrews 7.22 stated, So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. That is the new covenant there. So Jesus becomes the guarantee of a new covenant, Hebrews 7.22, Hebrews 8.6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a new covenant. There it ties mediator and better covenant together. This is just prior to the introduction of the quote from Jeremiah 30 31. He's also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Now, just ignore the rest of it there. That slipped into the slide somehow. But notice the connection between the covenant and promises. Now, when we look back at our verse, verse 15, I want you to notice in the last section there, those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And I want to connect three things here, the covenant, the promise, and inheritance. Those three things go together. And we see them link together in numerous passages, that the promises are guaranteed by a covenant, and they have a future orientation in terms of inheritance. Now, we're going to have to look at inheritance again to be reminded of a few things, but I want you to... Just hold your place here and go back to Hebrews uh, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. While you're doing that, I'm going to put a corrected translation up here on the slide. So that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance, a death having come about for the redemption of the transgressions of the first covenant. That would be the Mosaic covenant. Now, who are the called? Who are the called? People get all wrapped around the axle on this in a number of different things, especially when the issue is five-point Calvinism and election and predestination. The term called is it's just a simple word, kaleo, that is used, for example, in Matthew chapter... Uh, Matthew chapter twenty. It's the parable of the of the wedding feast and the invitations go out to uh the highways and byways to invite all those who will will to come to the wedding feast. And one guy shows up and he doesn't have on the right clothes, which indicates that he doesn't have the right kind of righteousness, and he is he is removed. And he's removed because of his failure to have the uh, the right kind of clothes. And that's in... Maybe my memory's failing tonight. I thought that was in Matthew chapter 20. But it's not... I'm not going to look at it. But in, anyway, in the process of explaining that uh, parable, Jesus says, But many are called but few are chosen. The parable of the wedding feast, Matthew 22, 22, 14. After removing the guy who shows up, Jesus says, many are called and few are chosen. The word called there is a broader term than the word for elect. They're not identical. The called are all of those who receive the invitation. That's related to the uh, ex what theologians will call the external call of salvation, the offer of salvation, to come and drink freely of the water of eternal life. And so there are many that are called, many who hear the gospel, many who are uh, told about Jesus and understand the gospel, but they don't respond. The only ones that respond, the chosen ones, are the ones who have the right kind of clothes. And they get the right kind of clothes because at the instant that they put their faith alone in Christ alone, God imputes to them the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the right kind of clothes. And because they're clothed in His righteousness, then they can come to the, uh, come to the wedding feast. But there are other passages that emphasize other aspects of this. For example, well, another passage that, uh, Emphasizes the invitation, uh, presentation of the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. It was for this he called you through our gospel. So calling doesn't just sort of happen by God zapping someone. It's they hear the gospel. It's that gospel invitation. So in some passages, it just has a broad sense of that invitation to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. But in other passages, it has a narrower meaning. For example, uh, Romans 8 28, for God so loved the world that he, I mean, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And then it goes on in verse 29 to define the calling as as, uh, the whole process there that those who God called, these he justified, those whom he justified, Eventually, these are the ones he glorifies. So the call there is used as a synonym for the group that has responded to the external call. So you have the word used on the one hand to refuse that those those who are called are those who are invited to believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Then you have the word used in a narrower sense to refer to those who have believed in Jesus as their Savior. And that's how this word is used here in Hebrews 9.15. That, oh let me go back to the easier to look at the corrected translation. So that those who are called, that is those who are saved, you could just substitute and, and paraphrase it that way. Uh, those who are called, not everybody that's invited, uh, according to 2 Thessalonians 2.14 and Matthew 22.13, that would be a broader audience. Those who are called here simply stands for those who have responded to that invitation, that they may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Uh, and that inheritance is really twofold, as we have studied in the past, that there is an inheritance for, that is common to all believers. And there is an inheritance that is unique to some. In the Old Testament, you, if you had numerous sons, each would receive an inheritance, but the eldest son, the firstborn, would receive a double portion. So it. it it's not that everybody gets the same thing. Everybody's going to look the same in heaven. God is not a a Marxist Leninist. God is going to reward some believers for obedience. And there are some believers who are going to lose rewards, which is uh, comparable to inheritance. So I want to just review this. You turn to Hebrews chapter one. And we've touched on this several times in Hebrews. This becomes this is. And underlying one of the major underlying doctrines in the whole letter to the Hebrews, because they are being challenged not to give up, not to fade in the stretch, not to fail in their spiritual life and go back to Judaism, because what they will put at risk is their future inheritance so I just want to look at, at I want to look at two passages in relation to this in Hebrews, and then we 'll uh, we'll look at the doctrine, which will probably take us, I know it will take us into next, next time. In the first two verses of Hebrews 1, God, who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by means of the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us, completed, fu- completed, fulfilled, completed action of revelation there to us by His Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. So Jesus Christ is the heir who inherits all things by virtue of who he is and what he did in his humanity. So that is an earned inheritance. Now we become joint heirs with him, by virtue of our obedience. Now turn over to Hebrews 6. In Hebrews 6 verse 12, this is following the passage that everybody wants to go to to think that you can lose your salvation. In Hebrews 6, we have the warning that leads into, that's, that's central to the warning passage and leads uh, leads into this, or it's central to it rather. Verse eleven. And we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope to the end. Now that is as strongly awarded a works type of terminology as you could get. Paul isn't saying, well, you got saved, so that's it. You've got it all you've got it all you have it all we have it all objectively. Christ has provided everything for us. But what he what he's saying here is that we have to grow spiritually. We're not saved to sit. We're saved to serve. And so we have to grow. He says we desire each one of you, I think I said Paul, not Paul, just right of the Hebrew says, that we, each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. In other words, to the end of your life, phase two, continue and persevere that you do not become sluggish, in your spiritual life, and fade in the stretch like these other believers who become will be losers at the judgment seat of Christ. That you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit, what? The promises. See there, we have that connection between promises and inherit again. So they're saved, but unless they do something unless they're consistent, and, unless, and this is the true biblical doctrine of perseverance, unless they hang in there and continue to grow, then they will jeopardize their inheritance in the future. So this is one of those doctrines that's crucial to understand because it relates to our motivation in the church age. The word for inheritance, the noun is kleronomos And it has the idea of one who inherits or an heir. But in our society, an heir uh, receives the property when somebody dies. But in the Old Testament background to this, somebody could be an heir of something and have a current possession. So the core meaning in inheritance is not the idea of somebody dying and having property transferred, but the core meaning is possession or property, having something as your possession. That's the verb, the uh, related, uh, kleronamos was the noun, this is the related verb, kleronomeo, meaning to possess or to receive something as one's possession. Now, these two words are used in several different ways. They're used to refer to a birthright, which someone gains by virtue of their, sonship by virtue of their position in relationship to the father. So that is a way we're most used to thinking about an inheritance as a birthright. Galatians 4:30 and Hebrews Hebrews 1:4. It's also used to describe property that is received as a gift uh, in contrast to a reward. So you may receive property because you've done something, but it's used in, in uh, Hebrews 1.14 and 6.12 as property that's received as a gift, just as a grace gift like salvation. It's used also to refer to property that's received on the condition of obedience to certain conditions. In other words, what the point I'm making is that we have inheritance that's, that relates to property that's given, and we have inheritance used in relation to things that are ours if based on some condition, the condition of obedience, perseverance, uh, growing spiritually. So it's used in these in two different ways. And that caused a lot of confusion for people because they think that, well, this means one of two things. We either lose our salvation or people who don't get this inheritance weren't really saved to begin with. And one view, losing the salvation, that's the view that's associated with Arminianism and the idea that you weren't really saved to begin with because you can't fulfill these conditions. If you were really saved, you could fulfill the conditions. That's related to the uh, hyper-perseverance view of lordship salvation. And then the uh, fourth way in which these words are used is in relation to a reward-based on meeting certain conditions and following certain activities. So when we see this in Hebrews, it's primarily used in terms of that future reward for continued service to God. And as we see in our passage, that service to God can't begin until, first of all, we are cleansed, trust Christ as our Savior, and are saved. And then it's all based on the fact that Christ is the heir of all things, and we are in him. So we have a certain measure of inheritance. Every believer has the same in certain areas because of our position in Christ. So that when the resurrection occurs, when the rapture comes, when you have all believers are resurrected and are in heaven, we're all going to have resurrection bodies that have basically the same properties. And we're not going to have any sorrow, tears, pain. All those things are going to be passed away. Uh, we're going to have, uh, we're all going to be happy. Nobody's going to have a sin nature. Uh, there's going to be many other aspects that every believer has in common, but there are going to be other aspects, privileges that we have that are based on our capacity and based on our spiritual growth. So these are the two dimensions, and we'll come back next time and go through the doctrine of inheritance, because this is going to be foundational to what happens, to things that are said coming up into uh, chapter 10. Chapter 10 is going to be just a whole lot of fun, because there's some tough passages there. And then we'll get to chapter 11. Which is really a lot of fun, but since I have taught through Genesis, we will not take two years to go through Hebrews 11. Which you could do in order to get the background on everybody that's mentioned there. So that'll be a lot of fun, but we'll have, uh, uh, Hebrews 10 is a tough chapter, but we have to once again be reminded of certain key doctrines that form the background so that when we read it, it it's, it's clear and it makes sense. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight and to get into areas of Scripture that's not often taught, not always understood, and demands of us a certain level of concentration. But as we do this, we realize how much was done for us on the cross, how much our Lord did for us and provided for us, and it relates to the whole plan and motivation that you have for us in our spiritual life. And so we pray that we would be encouraged that we would not lose heart, that we would not grow weary, and that we would keep our eye on the objective, which is to grow to spiritual maturity, to serve you in every way that we can, that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.